Hello, fellow movie lovers, and welcome to Cult Fiction, a podcast where we re-examine Hollywood's redheaded stepchildren. As a redheaded stepchild myself, I'm Stephanie Johnson. And I'm Andy Bowell. And today we are opening up Hollywood's crypt to review Walter Murch's Return to Oz. Yay. Yay. I, I got to get this out of the way up front. I unabashedly loved this movie. So interesting. Why? I mean, I'm not saying it was a terrible movie. It definitely was better than I ended up. I was dreading it and I ended up liking it a lot. But why did you love it so much? I think much the same way. Like I came in with no expectations, really. I knew nothing about this movie other than it historically has scared young children. And of course, we're going to get into it. But I think... You know, we've discussed, you and I, how I am the kind of guy where I like there to be a huge amount of buy-in. And mm-hmm. when you go into a fantastic world, it doesn't matter if the the rules are told to you as long as the rules are known by the fantasy world. And sure. that was very much what happened here. And so this was just the right amount of, okay, it's insane, but it knows its insanity for me. I can understand that. Like it buys into itself, which is important. And then it also is kind of weird and it takes you along a story in a way that I think most things you enjoy tend to follow. Yeah. So for those of you who missed the movie, this movie takes place six months after the tornado wherein Dorothy is still reeling from her visit to Oz. She finds that no one back home believes her about her adventures, and she cannot sleep. Eager to help Dorothy maintain normalcy, Aunt Em takes Dorothy to an electroshock therapy clinic. Dorothy is saved by a mysterious girl and is somehow called back to Oz, where the vain witch Mombi and the Gnome King have destroyed everything that makes the magical land beautiful. Dorothy, with the help of some new friends, returns Oz back to its original glory. So it it follows a similar trend with the original Oz movie. Dorothy has some real life experiences. We get a little bit of the, here's the land that Dorothy's in. Then she goes to Oz, fixes things, and then comes back to her regular life. Right. You know, thinking about it, and I've never really thought about this before, like, you only see less than 12 hours of Dorothy's real life in the original mm-hmm. Wizard of Oz. And, you know, it's it's yes. the same thing here. And I would argue in this instance, you see a little bit more of Dorothy's life than the first movie, than the first Wizard of Oz. I completely agree. Because you... You know, you follow her. You follow her to a second location. Never go with a hippie to a second location. And you watch her go through this really creepy psychotherapy turn of the century stuff where you don't really know what's happening. And then that's when she goes to Oz. Yeah, I so I, I really liked this movie. I loved this movie. And it's interesting. One of the few things that I actually did have a problem with 
is the whole electro shock at the asylum narrative, but mm-hmm. not for the obvious reasons. You know, okay. o- obviously part of the way this movie didn't age well. Social justice, one, two, three. I wanna be PC. It's just the way to be for me and you. Is yeah. the uh, the use of electroshock therapy. Which is still used today, but in when it is used today, it is used very much to people with people's consent. I don't feel like Dorothy really gets to give consent that this thing is going to happen to her. She definitely doesn't, and... I wasn't aware electroshock therapy was still in use. That's interesting, but like it, it's used more properly for sure. I feel like there is sort of a demonization of electroshock therapy as a medical technique and mm-hmm. whether that's completely earned or not, I think there's an argument for, but my whole thing was this movie takes place in 1899. This was mm-hmm. by all intents and purposes, a modern Marvel of, of medicine and Dr. Mm-hmm. Worley is not actually doing anything evil. Like in the late 18th century, late 19th century, it wasn't strange to use cocaine to fix a toothache or to give your kids right. some gin so they went to sleep. So right. there's a bunch of pre-coding for Worley and Nurse Wilson that they're the bad guys. And, you know, they, of course, play the Gnome King and Mombi, the actual villains in Oz. But it wasn't earned for me in the same way that it was in, say, the original, where the woman who was based on the Wicked Witch was a a total bitch. (laughs) Yes, I think. So there's a couple things. I think it's, it's a trope that we've come to expect in a lot of movies that asylums are just creepy places. So I I agree with you that I don't think I was as creeped out by Dr. Worley as I was by the nurse. The nurse gave me some serious nurse ratchet, one flew over the cuckoo's nest kind of vibes because she seemed very strict, very commanding. She seemed like if she wanted to assault Dorothy, she could have. We don't get to really see enough of Dr. Worley. If anything, he's absent-minded and that he's committing, committing? Maybe not the right word. Electroshock therapy in a thunderstorm. That doesn't (laughs) make the most sense. (laughs) Sure, I will completely concede that point. Yeah. I don't know. So so you had an interesting point that I, I would love to hear you speak more about. Like, there's... The movie does something where Dorothy is about to get electroshock therapy in a thunderstorm and right at the opportune moment, the power goes out. And that's when the magical girl, you know, suddenly isn't just something in the mirror, but is something that can change and affect things. And it was interesting. Yeah, I I want to start by saying I want to separate movie Wizard of Oz with book Wizard of Oz. Because book Wizard of Oz very much does not do the thing where it could be dreams, it could be reality. But as presented in this movie and the original Oz movie, it could be argued that Dorothy uses Oz to escape personal trauma as sort of like a coping mechanism. So when Dorothy's house undergoes the tornado, she goes to Oz. When Dorothy undergoes 
electroshock therapy and runs away and nearly drowns. It could be that she just uses Oz as a, this is where my mind goes when my body is physically experiencing trauma. So I think that is what Dorothy, I, I think you could argue that that's what Dorothy uses as a, as a trauma coping mechanism. And I was like, oh, there is a really interesting reading in this text if you examine it. Yeah, and they they walk a very fine line between no, this is definitively real and no, this is all a trauma dream. And, you know, the magical girl, which spoilers for a 35 year old movie is is Princess Ozma, (laughs) you know, Princess Ozma interacting in the real world is really the key and like mm-hmm. I she's she's never seen or if she is seen, she's never commented on by any of the real characters. You know, she conceivably gets Dorothy out of the electro shock chair, but, you know, maybe that's just unreliable narrator. And and I don't know, I think the answer to whether it's real or whether it's a dream depends on where you, the viewer, fall in Mm -hmm. your suspension of disbelief and your maturity when it comes to that. Sure. It's kind of, you wrote, it's kind of like Totoro in the same way. You have to just kind of walk that line between, is it real? Is it fake? Is it just make-believe? Where does it land? And if you're May or if you're Dorothy, it's completely real. So who can say who's right and who's wrong? Right. Yeah, and and you know, thinking about it, a lot of these fantastic magic in reality movies operate on that same kind of logic. It's it's interesting. At no point in the original Wizard of Oz do I really think it's a dream. Even even though yeah. that's how it's presented, and there was just enough plausibility presented mm. in here that I could accept that this and the, the original movie were both all just in Dorothy's head, which is actually kind of terrifying when you think about it. Sure. Well, and the fact that Dorothy would come up with someone who can remove her own head and has a <laughs> hall, hall of mirrors esque set of heads is just only in the mind of a child. Would that happen? Yeah. You, uh, you mentioned something about a, a tiger, a lion, a cowardly lion. And he could talk, too, like the Scarecrow and the Tin Man. So let's let's talk about that a little bit. This oh. movie scares the crap out of children. It scared the crap out of me as a fully grown adult. <laughs> and if I had watched it as a child, I would have been horrified. Yeah, I, I, I agree. You know, there's so much. This this movie comes up on lists of the, the most terrifying children's movies. And that is absolutely because of Princess Mombi, who who keeps a collection of heads that she can wear in a hallway. And because of the wheelers, which are just awesome. That's my word of the episode. <laughs> These awesome, evil, demonic looking creatures. They kind of look like Clockwork Orange. Um, like they've got that really ostentatious eye makeup. This is definitely the 80s time frame when it was made because it's like big eye makeup, big hair, big clothes. They're over the top. And yeah, they're terrifying because they make really weird noises when they travel and they have no mercy. 
Yeah, and it's it's fascinating to me. You know, I'd like to talk a little bit about the guy who directed this, Walter Murch, because clearly he made a darker movie, and that that was obviously a choice. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, like I'm trying to think of other scary movies that Disney pumped out and the black cauldron comes to mind i can i'm sure if i dig long enough i can think of some others but like to take an unofficial sequel because this was an unofficial sequel as Mm -hmm. you talked about before it's more based on the books than the original movie Mm -hmm. to take an unofficial sequel and then tonally depart was a real big risk and i and, and i adult andy appreciated that sure and i thought the darkness was what helped make it more engaging if this was lighter and safer i wouldn't have come Mm. out loving it as much right i think again we have to debate is it that we think this is such a shift because it is or is it we think it's such a big shift because there's years and years and years between wizard of oz the first movie and return to oz because i remember talking with my dad and he said that he experienced wizard of oz in his childhood as extremely dark as extremely terrifying interesting he was horrified of the of the flying monkeys and i think at that time was the original wizard of oz terrifying to children i'm sure it could have been i didn't uh, think to look into that at all but it's a fascinating question you know it it, i think anything is is terrifying if you watch it early enough you know on on one glorious day we're gonna wind up watching labyrinth and yes the goblins from labyrinth scared the crap out of me because the first time i saw it i was three meanwhile i was 19 the first the first time i saw labyrinth which was either very smart of my parents or very dumb of me for not seeking it out sooner. You take your pick. <laughs> but this movie does have really labyrinthy vibes. Yeah, and they came out around the same time. I want to say Labyrinth was 92, 91, somewhere in there. Um, mm-hmm. This was 85. But I can think of several movies. Like, like you, you used to be able to make a scary kids movie in a way that... Yeah we we got away from and this definitely fell into the um that trend and Mm -hmm. it's it's very interesting to me i fell down a rabbit hole researching this movie and looking in walter murch this is the only movie he has directed what really really um but the man is an award-winning editor he is famous for cold mountain specifically and oh my gosh yeah he he won an oscar for editing cold mountain and he is like he is a name he is a, a titan of editing you know he's done k19 the window maker the talented mr ripley the english patient um holy cow the godfather ghost Damn. apocalypse now the man the man is an established name but this is the only thing he ever directed and huh. it's it's interesting to me you know he decided to take on this project and Disney funded it and they fired him within the first two weeks because apparently he was having a real difficulty like making the day and they were scared of falling behind. And the only thing that kept him on as director of the movie was Walter Murch went to his friends, Frank Coppola, Steven Spielberg and George Lucas (laughs) and got them to vouch for him. Oh, I love that. So talk about who you know. And yeah, dang. You know, he he obviously finished out the project 
and Disney allowed him to come back on mainly because George Lucas offered to direct it if he fell behind again. So we almost got a George Lucas return to Oz. But as it is, you know, they they never forgave merch. And this movie was kind of sabotaged in its marketing. Mm-hmm. And watching this so many years later as an adult, I think that's just such a shame because I really like what he did. I really like the risks he took and I don't think there's anything actually wrong with this movie. You know, from a technical level, it looks good, it sounds great, the story is is just as fine as anything else. The sets, the costumes, they're beautiful. Um, I, I could gush and will continue to gush about this movie. I, I, I thought it was fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I really, I did not love Oz as a child, which is a whole thing um, that we can get into later. But so I was really dreading this and I really actually quite enjoyed this movie. I think there is a lot visually going on. The acting is really surprisingly good for 1980 whatever. And there's a lot thematically to talk about. The theme of Dorothy still considering Oz kind of her other home. And she's got her other family and how she deals with missing them and how she deals with loss of home. Mm-hmm. Home is a big thing for Dorothy. So her even in her real life, her house is being rebuilt. And she says, in the movie, she goes in in Oz to her old house that landed in Oz. And she says, she reintroduces herself to her bedroom and says, this is my room. This is where I slept. This is where we landed. It's a big topic, especially for kids, I think, as as they kind of figure out the world around them. Yeah. So I really appreciated that. I did too. It's, it's the safe space and yes, thank you. (laughs) Well, just, you're right. Like Dorothy comes across her old house inside Oz and you can just tell she, she loves it and is so much more familiar with it than the new house that we see at the beginning of this movie. Right. And that was an interesting moment. The only thing I think that could have made this better uh, Dorothy finding her house was if we had actually still seen the other wicked witch's feet. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yes, I kept looking and waiting for there to be feet. Yeah, she even she she turns to Belina the chicken and she's like, "Oh, that's where we landed on the Wicked Witch of the East." And I'm like, "I'm looking for the socks and I'm looking for the <laughs> the skeletal <laughs> remains of of witch legs." And I, that's the one punch Disney pulled, and I'm sad for it. I know. I kept expecting there to be like decaying witch feet, like right. half bones. But maybe apparently that's too much for a children's movie. But electroshock therapy? No, that's fine. Children will be fine with that. Yeah, yeah, that's the line. We can have <laughs> headless women and steampunk motorcycle monsters, but uh, we can't have skeleton feet. No, nope, no, nope. <laughs> that's too terrifying. <laughs> We've talked a little about Dorothy, and I think this is a good spot to talk about Firuza Balk, who is the actress who played Dorothy in Return to Oz. As with Mm -hmm. everything else, I loved her. I loved her performance. She, um, she's not a huge name, but she's actually done specific projects that I think people will recognize her from this being one of them. You know, she's going to come back on our list. Um, when we watch the craft, 
and if we ever get to the island of Dr. Moreau, like she had her she had her moment for sure. Uh-huh. For Firuza Balk, like I I just want to set this the stage for people. You're a little girl. You're a 12-year-old girl and you want to be an actress and your your mom is a, a stage mom and you go to Hollywood and you're shown to some executive and they go, "Hi little girl." How would you like for your first major film role ever to reprise the single most iconic female role of the of the century? Does that sound cool? How, how would you like to follow up Dame Judy Garland? So right. good. You, you, you see that girl on the giant poster? <laughs> the woman that all of America knows the name of? Try to follow that up. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And she this does. This is her first role? This is her third film credit. The only other thing she had oh. done was uh, was a t- two TV movies, one of which that came out at the at the same time as Return to Oz. So this was like her the second thing she had ever gone to do on set. Wow. That's crazy. I I I just think she slaughtered it. Like I think she yeah. she took this hugely ambitious role this thing that it was impossible to not have comparisons to one of the most classic characters in american canon Mm -hmm. and again maybe i'm so far removed from the people who watched this in the moment but i thought she was great she was brilliant yeah yeah and like dorothy dorothy is younger in this movie not not literally yes she's supposed to be six months older Right. Well, and even Judy Garland, when filming the original Wizard of Oz, had to have her breast taped because she was supposed to be playing, I think, 12 and yeah. she was 17. Yeah, exactly. So she, you know, she had already kind of become a woman and Judy Garland was always um, in her memoir. She always talks about her struggles with her weight and how she's very naturally full figured. So she already at 17 really looked like a woman. So it was really refreshing to watch an Oz movie where Dorothy is still a child. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so Dorothy Garland was 17 filming the original. Firuza Balk was 11, you know, playing a 12 year old. And Dorothy just as a character seems a lot younger. And I think that helps Especially if you're going to market this specifically towards kids, little kids, maybe little kids who are going to be terrified of it. Um, Mm -hmm. Having a younger character helps make her more relatable and it helps sell the child logic of Oz in a way. And and I I can't speak enough about it. I, I, I was blown away by her performance. Absolutely. And Dorothy makes more sense to me in this movie because I feel like there are times in Wizard of Oz where you get fed up with Dorothy being so innocent and so naive because she's so very clearly an adult. And in this movie, I had more patience for Dorothy's naivete because she's a child. So of course she's going to make decisions that don't make sense or she's going to not know the right thing to do. Like I had a moment out loud where I yelled at the television set when Dorothy didn't ask for the terms of the agreement with the Gnome King when it came to the guessing game. Dorothy has to guess 
different things, different objects in a room, and if it's not the right thing, one of her friends will get turned into stone. But she never asks what will happen if we guess wrong. And in the movie, or as I was watching it, I said, oh my gosh, Dorothy, are you new? You always ask for terms. But then I remembered, oh, she's a 10-year-old kid and she doesn't have a background in fairy tale literature. Um, She probably doesn't know that she's supposed to ask for terms of a deal first. You know. (laughs) You know. Sure. So I had more patience. All that to say I had more patience with Dorothy because she's a child. And it was so more aptly played. I agree. You know, she she sells 11-year-old from Kansas in a way that Judy Garland didn't. And I don't think that's a failing of Judy Garland. I think that's just more, you know, movies were made differently in 1935. Sure. But I, I, ex- I, I enjoyed her extremely. Yes, me too. Me too, me too. Yay. I have a question for you. Sure. So... We've established you're you're not necessarily a, a giant Oz fan, uh-huh. but what did you think about the way Return to Oz completely, for 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 the most part, ignores the original companions? You know, the Scarecrow is in the 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 last quarter of the movie, but really the Tin Man and the Lion aren't in it at all, other than for thirty seconds, and instead we get the new companions. And I, I, what did you think of that? From my understanding, it really makes sense with the way that the books work. So this one seemed much more based on the books, which I appreciated because there is a lot of moments with the first movie where things get fudged or things don't exactly happen the way they do. For example, there's a moment in this movie where they say, oh, at the end of my last time in Oz, the Scarecrow became the king. And having only seen the movie, I said, I don't remember that happening. And Alex has read all of the Oz books. And he said, yeah, that happens at the end of the first Wizard of Oz book. So I appreciated that this one went much more by the books, kind of established the world a little bit better. And from my understanding, that's kind of how each Oz book works is that it kind of comes with its own set of characters apparently as the oz books go on dorothy is maybe in half of them and she's kind of up to her own shenanigans and she's kind of off screen and there's an entire book that's just about belina and there's an entire book that's just about tiktok and his cast of characters that come with him etc etc so all that to say i think that's kind of how the books work that's so incredibly fascinating to me (laughs) no really i mean because we're we're getting pretty close to the wizard of oz being a century old you know it came out in in 1935 it's 2019 we're we're a comparative blink away from it being a century old and that is the thing you remember and I had never read any of the Oz books. I didn't know there was such a complete collection of them. That was another rabbit hole I fell down. And right. for there to be such a, a deep, vast world, for there to be just just so many books, multiple authors have written multiple books about this world. And people only truly think about or remember the one small slice of it. 
Right. I, I dig that. I dig that. And I want to know more, you know, I yeah. think, I think that's part of why I loved it. You know, talking about the buy-in and talking about just all these things that were like thrown together out of different books to create this completely new story that, that worked for me. Yeah. Well, I know you and Alex have talked about, um, LibriVox on mm-hmm. your podcast. He said he listened to most Oz books on LibriVox because most of them, they're all public domain. Right. So they're, they're all up there. And the thing about the books is that Frank L. Baum wrote them and spent the rest of his career trying to get away from them. He didn't want to do them anymore. He was so tired of them. He wrote 14 But within the 14, he constantly was trying to stop and do other things. But due to the popularity of them, he kept being asked to write more. Sure. And so much so to the point where he would start using pseudonyms for his other books to ensure that they were getting taken seriously. Because if he had just written under Frank L. Baum, it would just have been, oh, that's the guy who wrote Wizard of Oz. Yeah, cult of personality, and and you know you you well you've seen that with other other things. People people get sick of the thing that made them famous, you know. Sure, and um, then other people after his death took up writing them. Right. So it's you're right. It's been written by other people even. So it's kind of this big group project. At this point, yeah. That is right, Jack. Left, right, wrong. What are you talking about, TikTok? Little girls, pumpkin heads, make chicken, fly the coop. I, I, I really enjoyed just about every one of the new companions. I thought TikTok, yeah. like much of the other things about this movie, was awesome. I love. Oh, he's such a grump. Yeah. <laughs> He's such a fun character. I love his little World War One era hat. I, I, he's so cute. He, he has such an interesting narrative flaw. All, all these guys do, but, you know, TikTok, with his deal being that he can think, move, and speak, but they're independent of each other, and one can run out with the other two still going. It's, it's so interesting. You know, we've got we've got Jack, Jack Pumpkinhead, who is like 12 hours old and (laughs) made of made of sticks and pretty clueless and thoughtless and new and naive. And I could not I I looked so hard. I could not find any connection to Jack Skellington. So headcam. But I wanted there to be so bad. I desperately wanted there to be. He is Jack Skellington's great uncle. <laughs> and the land where all the trees are in Nightmare Before Christmas has got to be in the Enchanted Forest in Oz. I'd buy it. I believe it. <laughs> I think Tim Burton I, I think Tim Burton watched that and went, Oh, that guy's pretty cool. I'm gonna kill him now. <laughs> He's going to be a skeleton, a skeleton, a skeleton, a skeleton, a skeleton. And delight I... emos for decades and decades to come. Yep. Yep. No, I, I loved the companions. I think TikTok out of, out of anybody like 
I'll take TikTok over the Tin Man. The Gump was such a, a fun thing. This this okay, I've been alive for minutes, and he was funny. Like I I, I should have stopped when I'm ahead. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I think another part of why I love this movie is like all of the characters, and yeah. even even the chicken was was charming to me in a in a kid movie kind of way. Oh, Belina was so great. Yeah. All of the characters were great. Dorothy was great. And the villains were great. We haven't talked about Mommy and the Gnome King very much yet, but I was here for them. They're so weird. Um, I loved Mommy. She reminded me of the original BBC Wicked Witch of the West. Or not um, Wicked Witch of the West. Sorry, mixing my metaphors. Uh, White Witch in Narnia. Okay. Yeah. She looked she looked very similar to that actress. Um, but also just in the way she carried herself. She's very upright and completely terrifying. And it's the 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 appearances being deceiving and it's it's the pretty glittery sweet thing that lures you in and then and traps you. Yes. Yeah, so when Dorothy first encounters Mombi, Mombi is sitting on a long fainting couch and playing a harp and looking so regal and lovely. But because you as the audience have already understood that Mombi is a terrifying character, you you are prepared to draw back in horror. So the sweet the sweetness doesn't overtake you, but it does overtake Dorothy. Right. But like in the moment, you can you can see why she's she's drawn in. It's this this regal, elegant, like she could have introduced herself as being one of the good fairies, and it right. would have been plausible for Dorothy to believe it. Right. Oh, absolutely. And then the gnome king is a whole other bucket of bananas. He's great. He's so great. I loved him. Going back to the books, just real quick, like. Like you come to understand the gnome king is a more primary antagonist to the land of oz than even the wicked witches interesting like he comes back again and again and again and has multiple plots you know he doesn't die in the first one and mm. is never seen again he he's he's a real baddie and i'm sure that context was lost on the audience but you know looking at it now it, it it's so interesting to me and i much with everything else like i if you don't like when we like things i'm sorry this episode is so uh boring and derivative for you <laughs> I, you can go back and listen to our toxic avenger, avenger right, episode right. again <laughs> i loved the gnome king everything about him was so interesting to me he you know he was charming he had his own logic as a character it wasn't a fair logic it wasn't a good logic he he was much like jareth the goblin king from labyrinth he had his own logic and he stuck to it and that's what helped make him compelling and interesting for me yes as someone who's deeply into fairy tales i'm here for any character that comes with rules to how they behave and interact. So the fact that the Gnome King becomes more real for each person that he turns into an object. Yeah. Oh my gosh, my little heart went pitter-patter. I was so excited about that. Because it makes it makes logical sense. It's a trope and it comes 
you come back to it time and again. And it's fascinating to watch him slowly make the transformation from wall animation to 3D living sitting thing. Right. You know, it's it's a clever meta tactic to be able to get the actor actually in there in the role. But the fact that they were able to justify it through the plot, I very much appreciated Mm-hmm. absolutely that was such a cool thing um i i found out about this through either imdb or wikipedia i can't remember now but the wall animations and the gnome king when he's in a more claymationy state those were actually done by having the actual actors speak and and act the scenes and then the animation people at claymation would watch that and build the models to match hmm. and that is so cool to little theater film nerd me oh yeah like it's it's not only a homage to what the old school disney animators used to do because that was the trick they would watch somebody act the thing and then draw it but you know it's also a technological precursor to modern day mocap it's this it's the small, tiny little slice of a middle space in film technology and presentation where we were doing it this way. And that's it, it's so utterly cool to me. I love that you geek out over things like this. That's why it's really it, it's really refreshing to do a podcast with you because I know nothing about film history or film technology. I know everything about literature. And it's so fun to pair my knowledge of literature with your here's why this is cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. And and I hope it's cool. I, I hope the listeners are, are just as interested by this, but you know, I, I think that's why we work because we, we definitely bring two different sides to the table and what are movies, if not the application of storytelling and visual technology. So in this oh thesis, in, in, th in this paper, I will present on <laughs> my my theater film thesis. <laughs> there you go. What happened to the scarecrow? Where is he? Oh, I transformed him into an ornament, into an amusing and beautiful ornament for my palace. Well, so if I may, if I may toot my own horn of literary thinking in sitting down to watch this, like I, I've said a couple times, I was really dreading it. I'm not a big fan of Oz. And Alex said, this is so weird. You, you love Peter Pan. You have multiple times told me that Narnia was the first fantasy you ever took and you love it, but you don't like Oz. And you really don't like a lot of the Alice in Wonderland stuff. It makes, you've told me multiple times, it makes you uncomfortable. And so we sat there and we had this whole thought about, is it because it's British versus American? No, that doesn't work. Is it because it's written in certain time periods? No, it's, that doesn't make sense. And I came to realize the reason Oz doesn't feel safe or comfortable to me is that it's not safe or comfortable for Dorothy. Mm. Um, in Peter Pan, Wendy and John and Michael have the Lost Boys by their side, and they have Peter to kind of show them around. In 
Narnia, Lucy has Mr. Tumnus and Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And in Harry Potter, even, Harry has Hagrid and Hermione and Ron. In Oz, in both Oz movies, Dorothy more or less comes to Oz alone. Now, granted, in this movie, she has Belina, but Belina isn't a whole lot of help. Because Belina is also an outsider. Right. So there's no one there's no one concierging Dorothy around Oz saying, and this is what happened, and this is how it works, and this is where you're gonna go, and this is how you beat the baddie. She's very much on her own, but as an adult, I very much appreciate this because she has to figure out what's wrong and how to fix it. Yeah, I love it. In her own way. Yeah. I appreciate it now. I think as a child, it was really scary and intimidating. But as an adult, I can see, oh, this is really, really valuable. And it helps give her an agency to to have yes. to be clever and, and have to figure something out with, with literally next to no one holding her hand. Yes. Yes. She has a chicken who ultimately ends up saving the day. But she hasn't. She only has a chicken. Right. Or, you know, look at look at the first one. You know, she's got the munchkins who, like, know about one thing. Hey, go that way and there'll be someone who can tell you what's up. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So she is making this big journey, who knows how many miles, essentially by herself. Yeah. What other, like, I can't think of another heroine, especially from that era, you know, turn of the... 19th century and just so for Dorothy to not only be a heroine but be an active one certainly more active than Alice right because Alice Alice is a heroine but she's also puttering around like Alice doesn't really Alice isn't really given a plot Alice is given a series of happenings which may or may not be just my critique of Lewis Carroll's writing. Sure. (laughs) Um, I love the man, but he didn't know how to plot for crap. So I'm trying to think of other heroines in children's literature of that time. Have you ever read Pilgrim's Progress? I've never heard of Pilgrim's Progress. Okay. Pilgrim's Progress (laughs) is a very puritanical piece of propaganda disguised as literature about heaven sort of it is a 1678 oh so much earlier than i had assumed 1678 christian allegory written by john bunyan it is regarded as one of the most significant works of religious english literature but it's coming from a completely different time frame than i thought it was i thought it was early 1800s but no it's way earlier but it's two children who walk along a path and encounter a series of unfortunate happenings on their way to basically heaven okay but again this is from 1678 i thought it was from 1850s i am very off well that leads into my other point though like you you can name any disney princess but sure. you have to remember that they really weren't Disney princesses until Disney changed the stories and often cases made them 
non-terrifying but right but, but even then they were in no way contemporary no they were based on fairy tales like so cinderella is based on a Grimm's fairy tale which is based on a something else fairy tale which is based on a foucault ballet but that was written at a way different time frame and is a copy of a copy of a copy you know yeah so in the original, it was completely different than the Cinderella that you and I know today. So I, I think Dorothy just deserves to be thought of even more highly, at least more highly than than I personally had ever really given her as a character credit. And and this movie, Return to Oz, is what really made me stop and consider her in a new light. And Baum is Baum is good for that. So during one of the things that he was known for during his life was that he was a secretary for his local suffragette movement. Good. Which is great. He also fun word on Ozma. Ozma is in the books. She isn't hidden in a mirror. She's hidden by being turned into a boy, and Ozma becomes Tip or Tipitarius, and several literary scholars have pointed to Tip as the earliest example of a trans character in children's literature. So Baum is amazingly impressive for giving agency to characters across the gender spectrum. Sure. Um, So especially for when he's writing, we have to give him that credit. He definitely said some really problematic things about Native Americans that bear examining um, and bear apologizing, which his two of his descendants have done. But as far as making movements for gender equal recognition in literature, he deserves credit in that too. Yeah. So, you know, definite praised him for that and, and definite, oh my God, boo on him for <laughs> uh, his words about native Americans and saying he honestly would not regret their extermination. Oh boy. Uh, check, check your heroes. Even, even yep. old literary writers who, who created your favorite bedtime stories. <laughs> yep. Yep. Definitely remember that everyone is a human and your heroes will all be problematic. Absolutely. My friends are in trouble. I know it. We are in trouble, Dorothy. One last word about the Gnome King. I, I, I was utterly blown away by this. He was played by a guy I've never heard of named Nickel Williamson. And uh-huh. it, it must be an oversight in my own like theater nerd education that I have never heard of Nickel Williamson. This man was a titan of the <laughs> stage in his time. That's amazing. Playwright John Osborne. And if you're a theater nerd, that John Osborne called him the greatest actor since Marlon Brando. Samuel Beckett called him a genius. Like I, I've never heard of the guy, but he, he demands my respect. He demands me telling you listener about his, his legacy as a stage actor. And honestly, you watch his performance as the Gnome King and he's awesome. He kills it. I can see why he's so good. (laughs) Yeah. His voice alone is amazing. Yeah. 
So good. Yeah. Well, now that we're done with our random observations, did you have a favorite quote, Andy? I did. I absolutely did. Um, like I said, TikTok is my favorite of Dorothy's six sidekicks throughout the two uh, movies we've talked about here. And he has a quote, I have always valued my lifelessness. <laughs> And I, I love this because it's funny. You know, TikTok's a robot. He is literally a mechanical man. And, you know, we get all these fun I'm a robot jokes. But uh-huh. I think about that line. And the more I think about it, the more it actually is incredibly fascinating to me. You know, think about the lion, the scarecrow, and the tin man in the original. They all wanted aspects of humanity. They all wanted to be more human. So for TikTok, who really is, I mean, Dorothy's main companion in this movie, to not only not want that, but to revel in his Uh non-humanity is so interesting. You you don't see that in in any instances (laughs) of, of pop culture I can think of unless the robot is evil. You know, so for, yeah. for TikTok to be good and be chill with where he's at and to be able to look on the bright side of not actually being alive, I, I loved it. Oh, man, I love that, too. Yeah. What was your favorite quote? <laughs> Mine was, give my love to all the chickens. <laughs> Which Belina says at the very end of the movie. And I just kind of loved it because it sounded like a really over-the-top goodbye that you might say to people. And part of me goes... Should I just start saying that now at the end of like letters that I write? Give my love to all the chickens. It's a very <laughs> Stephanie goodbye. <laughs> it is a very, it is a very me goodbye. That is absolutely how I'd say goodbye at a party. <laughs> Give my love to all the chickens. Kiss his hand. Waves into crowd. See you later. <laughs> well, I appreciate it, and I welcome it as your new call sign. You, you, you do send off. <laughs> Thank you. Good night. I've been Stephanie Johnson. Give my love to all the chickens. <laughs> Fits. It does. It really does. Uh, so I've I've shown my hand many a time and I love this movie. Did you enjoy this movie? I loved this movie. Do you think Yay. it's cult? I it, it is massively cult. It's, <laughs> it's not the most cult thing. That's I'm still tossed up between Toxic Avenger and like uh, into the void <laughs> but mm. mm-hmm. like this this is cult i can look at this and see why it failed in so many ways um, sure. it was a major critical bomb it didn't even make back half of its money but oh no <laughs> oh, oh yeah yeah no i wasn't kidding like disney disney got so fed up with this that they like stopped advertising it and you know oh. pair that with the fact that it was a kind of sequel to Again, one of the most beloved stories of the American canon and all of the all of the tonal differences, all of the actor differences, adding in new characters, making it scary. I can see why this failed. My wife opted out of watching this because she, quote, hates it. (laughs) (laughs) So wait, she watched it as a child and then said, 
Nope, I don't need to see that again. Apparently she watched it like six years ago as basically a young adult and was like, yeah, that was weird. That was weird as hell. I don't need to watch that again. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love it. I do too. I, I can see why this failed, but I wish it had succeeded. And I do too. I This movie is why I'm glad to be doing this podcast with you because I was never going to watch this and I thought it was an utter gem. It is my favorite movie we have reviewed so far. I love that. What was your Oscar that you would give this movie? Yeah, so interestingly enough, you know, one of the things I talk about with being cult is it can't win a real award. Return to Oz yes. did win the Oscar for best visual effects. Wait, what? It, it, it absolutely did. Oh, well, then we can't give it an Oscar. We can't, we can't award it Oscars. <laughs> it already won one. I'm going to fight for my right to praise this movie. <laughs> of course, of course, of course. But honestly, like, this is kind of a cop-out, but I my Oscar for Return to Oz is the best physical effects and acrobatics. This movie earned it. We talked about the, the claymation and the proto-mocap, and that was fascinating to me. You know, something about the wheelers that I loved, they're real. They're not CGI. They're not clay. Those That was a troop of dancers and acrobats that stuck wheels on their hands and feet and then learned how to appropriately glide around and move on it. That is so cool to me. I love the commitment wow. to it. And more than that, the thing that seals it for me is TikTok. TikTok was voiced by the same guy who plays Admiral Akbar, which is fun. <laughs> but he was... Uh, played in the suit by a gymnast named Michael Sundin. And what Michael Sundin mm. did was he stood upside down and walked on his hands backwards inside of the suit. Wait, what? Picture that. Take a moment and, and picture upside down, backwards, on your hands. And the uh, the head and arms were operated remotely. But... Fitting in that squat little suit, this isn't just like R2-D2 where you you stick a dwarf in the robot. This was a regular sized man contorting his body in insane ways just to make the robot boy walk around. Excuse me, excuse me, robot man. Robot man, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up, Andy. I never would have known half of those things. It's awesome. That's that's my word of the episode, and I use it genuinely and unironically. There was so much that was just awesome about this. Listener, uh, drinking game for this episode of <laughs> Cult Fiction. Uh, go back, re-listen to this episode, and take a sip of your drink, not a shot, because good God, you will die anytime Andy says awesome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Stephanie, what, what did you think was awesome enough to give this an Oscar? Well, Andy, you're so awesome because what I thought was awesome about this awesome movie, I would like to give my Oscar to The Rock Animation. I was in for it. It was fantastic. It was weird. It grew on me so much. I loved that it kept coming back. 
And I felt like it very well set the tone for things are going to get weird real fast. I just really appreciated it. Absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I, I didn't know half of the things that you told me about it. So after listening to you rant about about it, I now appreciate it even more. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why I do a podcast with you. There we go. No, I mean, listener, this one was at time of recording not accessible through free means. We don't advocate piracy. Um, but really, if, if you can find this, it is a visual treat. If absolutely nothing else, like there's so yeah. much visually that is just great about this movie. And it's it's really fun. It's a good way to spend an evening. Yeah. You know, it's another good way to spend an evening. <gasps> Playing our favorite game. Playing Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. You want to go first? Yeah. Um, So another chance to just talk about Nicole Williamson. He's amazing. He's so great. Nicole Williamson was in The Exorcist 3, which is my favorite of The Exorcist movies. No, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he was in The Exorcist 3 with Brad Dorif, um, who is better known as the voice of Chucky. Oh, sure. Yeah. Brad Dorif was in Murder in the First with your boy, Kevin Bacon. Kevin Bacon. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well Andy, I think we tied this episode because I also did it in two. Awesome. Um, so Brian Henson played Pumpkin Jack, and he's also, you know, Jim Henson's son, um, which I feel like we didn't even talk about at all, but also, oh my gosh, Pumpkin Jack's voicing, um, was fantastic, and it makes complete sense because only genius can come out of that family. (laughs) So Brian Henson was in Muppets from Space with Andy McDowell who was in Beauty Stop with your boy, Kevin Bacon. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think Muppets from Space was my favorite for the longest time. Oh, um, it's so good. Yeah, until the uh, Jason Segel, Amy Adams one, Muppets in Space was my f- absolute favorite. Yeah. Yeah, actually, I have a special place in my heart for both of those movies, and it's really hard to choose between them. Very fair. Because I, I love Jason Segel. I have told Alex that if he dies and Jason Siegel comes to my door and says, Stephanie Johnson, will you marry me? I am absolutely <laughs> marrying Jason Siegel. Uh, just because he seems like a fun guy to be married to. <laughs> and But I I have a soft spot for that. But also Muppets from a Space came out when I was like 10. So that's like my Muppet movie. Like the Muppet movie I grew up with. So, you know. Fantastic. Yeah. It's not at all relevant to the podcast at all. Let's pick another movie, shall we? Let's pick another movie. And I'm into it. I'm looking forward to it. I have re-randomized the Hollywood crypt list. And so we are going to pick between our 315 available films. Yes. And we have number 68. Oh, I'm excited. Oh, is it is it Anaconda? It's not Anaconda. <laughs> you're still but safe. But you're really excited. 
Okay. Okay. So we've been doing this for, this is our 10th episode now. And I gotta, uh-huh. I gotta tell you and tell the listener, I, you know, aside from Toxic Avenger and, and to it, it, Toxic Avenger and Teeth were gory, uh-huh. but I really thought that we were going to have a little more meat and gristle and blood and violence. Uh-huh. And we haven't. Uh-huh. And number 65 on the list uh-huh. is Green Room. Green. Green Room is one of my favorite movies of the past five years. It is directed by Jeremy Salyanay, and it stars Patrick Stewart as a neo-Nazi gang leader. This is the one that I thought was apt pupil, and I said, is that the one where, uh, where Ian McKellen bakes a cat? It, right and and then we <laughs> we considered putting app people on here and decided we don't need to see that <laughs> i'm sorry uh listeners behind the pod andy and i had a long planning session and we talked about apt people versus green room for a long time and this is the one that we were talking about we did because wow this is this is Elton Yanshin and Aaliyah Shawkat, maybe from Arrested Development, as two members of a punk band who get locked in their green room after they see a murder. And this is, what? listeners, fair warning, this is available on Netflix. This is, without a doubt, the crunchiest, most brutal movie we have watched so far. I cannot wait. Okay. I'm going to watch this with the lights on. <laughs> probably fair. Probably a good idea. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm so happy. The, the, the crypt and the random number list are so kind and they are so good. I have not jimmied the list. I have not, I have not rigged it this time. It just, it gave me a gift. It's going from a movie I'd never heard of that became one of my favorite movies to one of my favorite movies, period. I I cannot wait. <laughs> I wish I were as excited as you are, but I will say that it looks interesting. How about that? Fair enough. I'm okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all for this edition of Cult Fiction. If you want to keep up, you can follow us on Twitter at Cult Fiction Cast. You can also follow, rate, and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll close the crypt for now. But join us next time where if we're still breathing, they'll let us bleed as we watch 2016's Green Room. For Stephanie Johnson, I've been Andy Bowell. Help me, Google. You're my only hope.